It's Halloween month, folks. It's finally here. Hooray. We are pumped. It's our jam, making with the creepy. This is You Totally Made That Up, and I'm Nash. And I'm Tiff. And if you have listened before, welcome back. And if you're new, here's the scoop. We are a bi-weekly podcast that tells you stories with a supernatural, paranormal, spooky, just outright weird bend to it. But the catch is they have to be true, even if they're only true to the people who lived them. And by that we mean our criteria is we have to have facts. None of this the legend says or according to the lore stuff. We want names and dates and places. And we also want to hear stories from you, too. We are aiming to sprinkle in many episodes, which we call Spooky Snacks, amongst these full episodes. And in those, we want to know what things you'd like us to go over. And in those cases, they can kind of be according to the lore type stuff. That's fine, because we just want to be quick and cute in those. So if you've got something like that, like a local cryptid or something else, in, you know, a legend in your hometown, we'd love to hear that. We'd also love to hear any personal spooky stories you have to tell, whether it happened to you or somebody you know, or maybe somebody in your family. And at the end of the show, after we say bye, just hang tight for a second. There's going to be an outro where we tell you where you can find us online, all the social media stuff, uh, the blog, which is where you'll find show notes and credits. So you'll know how to get in touch with us. We have learned that we are prone to forgetting to say those or say all of those. Hence the outro to save everyone's sanity mostly ours there was one episode we just plum forgot to say our names so sorry about that i forget even which one it was but hey there you go you know us now and oh also shout out to ireland ireland has shown up in our listeners and also sweden sweden you intrigue me you're second only to great britain and america in terms of our listenership, we've gained more of you in Sweden, and I am choosing to continue to labor under the delusion that you are Skarsgård cousins, because I just want you to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Alex, holla at your girl over here. I'm just saying. <laughs> Here's what's so funny. I know so little about that family. Like, I'm aware of the dad, because he's been in everything. His mm-hmm. best movie is Deep Blue Sea, frankly. No, it's my favorite. It's my favorite movie. No, he's been in many prestigious things. But yeah, I know I know of Alex, and I know that there's other brothers, and I know that one of them is, is the clown, right? Yeah. See, it's pathetic. I'm a pathetic fan. All right, so Halloween month. You guys are going to get an episode every week this month to celebrate Halloween. Three full episodes and two spooky snacks. And we aimed to choose topics that aren't what you may typically think of. So, you know, if you're looking for Frankenstein and Dracula, that's not exactly where we're going with these, which hopefully you'll think is a good thing. So for this episode, our stories do have October in common for one thing. But the main theme for this up is being scared. How sometimes people can misinterpret things and it's not fun scary. It's holy crap, everything's going to hell scary. So... Basically, people having come apart over stuff that may or may not be founded in actual reality, misinterpreting things that happen and taking it to a whole new special level of bananas. So, in other words, panics. And I call it that because I'm not exactly clear about where one would draw the line between a widespread panic and a mass hysteria. Because, just, like, what exactly is widespread? What exactly is mass? You know, is is there a number or a geographic area or what? So call it what you will, but here's a definition for you. Mass hysteria, a.k.a. collective obsessive behavior or collective hysteria, refers to the expression of strong, inappropriate emotional or physical responses, such as irrational fears or hopes or sickness, by groups of people to beliefs based on suggestions, misunderstood facts, imagined stimuli, communal reinforcement, or blindly following a false authority. Lots of options there. Lots, lots to choose from. It still doesn't exactly give us, didn't drill down on, like I say, a number or a, anything like that, but... uh, There's no real scientific method to this, let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not for that. A group. I guess if we're three or more gathered. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the criteria is exactly. But uh, anyway, Tiff is going to get us started with your first, oh my God, we're going to die, tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People were worried. A lot of people were worried. So we are going to what's quickly becoming my favorite era that we keep working in. Is it the 1800s? It is. 
I love it. Well, it's cocaine. It's cocaine. <laughs> I mean, you guys Google patent medicines. I'm, I'm not leading you astray here. It's, there was so much cocaine and laudanum and, and uh, opium. And <laughs> Man. so whatever you're about to say, I'm going to go ahead and place my bets on cocaine. I digress. I'll let you talk. You know, I hadn't thought about that angle as I was researching, but this makes a lot more sense now. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> So this mysterious being terrorized London for about 67 years and may have even crossed an ocean. So the main part of my story kicks off in 1837, but before that, there were already some stories about this being. Most of them seem to have begun in an area called Barnes Common in London in the early 19th century, and it started with the appearance of what was described as a ghostly white bull. Then he started to establish his individuality and evolved from a bull to an imp and then later to an inhuman-like warrior in brass armor with sharp claws. So very discreet. The first recorded description of this particular character that formulated his devil-like appearance was when there was an attack on a woman named Polly Adams and his description was given by another woman who witnessed the attack. And she said that she saw a strange figure that escaped with huge leaps. So now we are jumping into October 1837. We're in London and there's a girl named Mary Stevens who is unfortunate enough to be the first reported attack victim of this creature. This figure, cloaked in darkness in an alleyway, leapt at her, held her tightly in his arms, started kissing her and shredding her clothes. He touched her skin with hands that she described as cold and clammy as those of a corpse. And then the creature ran away without a trace when she started screaming in terror. The next day, this creature was reported to have attacked a carriage and then leapt about nine feet over a fence to escape afterwards. A couple months later in January 1838, the Lord Mayor Sir John Cohen received a letter from a resident who reported an attack by this creature. And the Lord Mayor published the letter and triggered other frightened individuals to report their own encounters with this being. And he really stoked the fire on this because then he started showing uh, crowds like piles of these letters from various places in and around London complaining about similar like wicked pranks. And he just kept kind of writing these things off and kind of telling everyone, Oh, you know, it's just a bunch of wealthy jerks that are performing all of these kind of uh, stunts and attacks. So what was happening is this person, or maybe even persons, would ring the doorbell of a home, and when the victim would answer, use some kind of metal claws to shred at their clothing, or they would do something similar to a person who was walking alone at night. So these were very physical attacks. This creature that was described as being quite devilish came to be called Spring-Heeled Jack. And this is because of the many reports of this person jumping in front of or away from his victims in such a way that no mortal man would be capable of. Like, you know, jumping over a nine-foot-tall hedge or fence. Now, the next well-known attack was on a woman named Jane Alsup. This happened February 18th of 1838, and she answered her door for somebody that she thought was a police officer. One of my sources said that the person at the door was shouting that he'd caught spring Hill Jack and was looking for help. So she answers the door. This person says, can I please have a candle? She goes and she brings it to him. And when she comes back, he threw off his cloak, revealed a hideous form with clothing that resembled oil skin. And then she said that he breathed out blue flame and began to tear at her clothes. <laughs> so he was like, <laughs> Candy Graham. <laughs> <laughs> what he was sure it? was. <laughs> well, because you said like the weird skin, like land shark. <laughs> Candy Graham. I've just alienated like 50% of the listeners. Go to YouTube, put in Saturday Night Live, Candy Graham. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you'll see what we're You have to laugh about. at it because it's so stupid. It's such a perfect gag. It's so dumb. It's, it's so dumb. <laughs> I think about that probably more often than a normal person should. Like, that just pops into my head. I'm like, why? Why? No, it's like, I'm not, ex I wasn't expecting anything. Dead silence. Candygram. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, okay. Hmm. 
Yeah, go look it up, you guys. We'll wait for a second. You can come back. All right. So she gets the candy gram. She goes to the door. Mm -hmm. He's he's breathing blue fire. All mm -hmm. right. Yeah. He tears at her clothes and chases her back into her house and only runs away when her sister comes out to try to help her. Now, about nine or ten days later, another young woman, her name is Lucy Scales, is walking through an alleyway. She had just left her brother's house. She's got her sister with her. Everything's good, right? She sees someone standing in the alley. She pauses for a second, but then this guy that's standing there has a lantern, and it's similar to the ones that are used by police officers. So she's like, whew, all right, you know, we're okay. We're in a dark alleyway, but this guy is totally a man of the law. Nope, no, she's very wrong. So she's, she continues walking along. This guy jumps at her, breathes out more of his blue fire, and sends her into such insane, intense hysterics that she ends up having seizures, and this goes on for hours and hours before she's able to calm down. March 2nd, The Times shares the story from Jane's attack, and there's even an arrest. They found this guy who was wearing the right clothes, he had a candle, he was in the area, but they end up having to let him go because Jane was so insistent that her attacker had breathed fire, and obviously this guy couldn't. Uh, uh, I'm not saying it was cocaine, but I'm not saying it wasn't cocaine. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I can't have an opinion yet. I don't know. I don't know about this. So now these two stories of these major attacks had happened closer to the city center. So before there had been stories, like I said, about this creature who was originally a bull and then an imp and then so on and so forth. And they were just kind of like, oh, those silly country folk, you know, with, with their country cocaine. <laughs> They've got all these silly things that they're thinking about. But now this is actually happening in the city. And people are like, whoa. We need to really pay attention to this. And the newspapers pick this up, like I said, the Times starts publishing this. And because there was no such thing as journalistic integrity during this time, and because these stories were entertaining, they ran with it. They were all about Spring Hill Jack stories. Did you see him? Did your neighbor see him? Did you hear a noise outside that was totally Spring Hill Jack? Tell us about it. We're going to write a story about it. He ends up getting described after so many different sightings and, of course, now being a city dweller as a kind of gentleman demon. Personally, based on the images that we have, I think he's more of like a pirate Batman. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, really, you really have to take a second and look at the show notes and see these images that were published along with a lot of these stories. You're going to see it immediately. Like, you're going to get it. Like, imagine... Jerry Seinfeld wearing that puffy shirt. You guys know yes. that episode. Okay, again, here we are cutting a, cutting our already 50%, even smaller. Jerry Seinfeld in a puffy shirt, wearing like riding breeches with knee-high leather boots. And then like Batman, the cowl, the Batman. Are <laughs> you die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain? Where be my rum? Arg. <laughs> You're an amazing pirate, Ash. <laughs> Where be my rum, Alfred? <laughs> the bat rum? The bat rum. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's a candidate for the episode title. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, so please check that out. So the, the stories and the images that go along with it pretty much always show him, like I said, with the knee-high boots, the pants, a kind of flowy shirt. Sometimes he'll be wearing almost what looks like a, a vest or like an armor kind of top piece. One source sums it up. His noticeable features were his tall, thin build with bat-like wings, pointed ears, horns, clawed hands, goatee beard, and wheels of fire for eyes that flashed in the dark night. The dark night. <laughs> All right. It's, 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 this is a conspiracy, I swear. It is. <laughs> So, um, you know, these two accounts of the attacks on these women in London, like I said, they submit the story, the stories are spread, and now he becomes like a, a pop culture kind of character. There are plays that are put on that feature Spring Hill Jack. He becomes kind of like a, a story character, like in little serial stories that are released in um, different kind of pamphlets and newspapers. 
But even though he's appearing more and more there, his actual physical appearances are becoming less and less frequent. Or they're being dismissed as copycats because people are being found, you know, with costumes. And his, his kind of feats <laughs> or attacks are not quite fitting his, you know, stereotype. But at this point, it really doesn't matter. Now he's become a, a, a boogeyman all around the London area. And one of the, the things that he was used for was to help get kids behave. They would tell their kids that if, basically, if you don't fall in line, Spearing Hill Jack is going to come and scare you while you're sleeping or watch you through the window, like with his burning fire eyes. This is like some sort of fucked up elf on the shelf. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. But, and uh, now I don't know what things were like for you growing up, but I probably would have preferred the Spring Hill Jack stories compared to my mom used to tell me that if I was not going to behave or listen to her, that she was going to bring me to the woods and let the gypsies have me and that I would have to do chores for them. And when I was done, they would eat me. So, <laughs> well, I, that you've turned out normal is, is <laughs> astounding. No, I mean, in the South, we'd, and I know that some kids got whooped. I never got whooped. But going to fetch your own switch is fairly common for certain generations here in the South. And I know that the way my little grandmother did me, I would be so just bereft and beside myself at the thought that I disappointed her and then going to get the switch. And then I'd come back and she'd be like, no, that one's going to fall apart too easily you gotta go pick out another one that by the time i'd get back i would be just so just weeping it she'd go well i think you've learned your lesson so you know let's go have cheerios or whatever the hell or spaghettios or <laughs> some kind of circle food <laughs> there was a circular food product and but no i was never i, I can't say that i was told that gypsies would eat me <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you lucked out. <laughs> and I would say that the uh the children of 18th the 1800s lucked out too because I would have preferred that. But that's fine. So, like I was saying up until this time, weird unsolved crimes were kind of attributed to him and the sightings really dropped off until about 1843 when he reappeared and started attacking carriages. From then on, his appearances would be really sporadic. The next big one is 1877, when he appears to a group of soldiers and, quote, the sentry noticed a strange figure in the darkness who ended up slapping him in the face. When a guard shot at the figure, there was no visible effect. Then the figure disappeared into the darkness with long leaps. So just come up, slap you and run away. That's my favorite. <laughs> the bitch slap run. Love it. Hands down, my favorite. Uh-huh. And then that same year, he is sighted in Lincoln, Lincolnshire, 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 and was chased and shot at by a mob, but again, was not affected by bullets. And then his last noted sighting around the London area was 1904, when he was just seen jumping across rooftops. There are lots of theories about Jack. One that I personally love is that he's an extraterrestrial entity with a non-human appearance and features and a superhuman agility deriving from life on a high gravity world. So, you know, aliens. No. Aliens, Nash, come on. No. No? You don't buy it? No. Okay. Well, how about this one? That he's a demon accidentally or purposefully summoned into this world by practitioners of the occult or who made himself manifest simply to create spiritual turmoil. You buying that one? No. <laughs> Okay. I, I like I like alien better, believe it or not. Well then how about a non supernatural theory? Ah. Yes. There's the idea that he could have been the Mad Marquis, the Marquess of Waterford, as he was frequently in the news in the eighteen thirties for drunken brawling, brutal jokes, vandalism, and was said to do anything for a bet. On top of that, he was known for his irregular behavior and his contempt for women, hence why he's called the Mad Marquis. So, you know, it could have just been a douche. <laughs> I like I like the douchebag angle. I want to know more. We'd have to know more about, in that time period, what, like, 
could he have done something with a gas lantern? Like what that blue effect was. Mm -hmm. Assuming that all the eyewitnesses were correct and there was some sort of blue flame action going on. Right. We'd have to know more. Right, in Someone who cares enough to look it up because we're not going to. Is anyone a fire breather? Any one of our listeners? You guys doing that on the side? Well, because you know. Let us know what's up. Gas flame. Blue. So I don't know if yeah. they were. If he held a lantern close enough to his face. If in the panic, these people thought it was eyeball action, especially if he had a mask on and he was shiny and it reflected. But but see, mm -hmm. here I'm going with logic. We'll we'll go with alien. Yeah. Okay. And then there's, of course, the kind of most boring one is just that it's a person or people just pulling pranks and that it evolved from there into a cautionary tale that would kind of change to fit certain themes. As at this point, like I said, people were moving from the country to the city, so you're getting a lot more people that are passing along their superstitions and their, their stories that way, that he was used just to scare children, kind of a tactic for that. And then of course, since so many of his attacks were on young women, there's, you know, like we're told nowadays, carry mace and put your keys between your fingers, that he could have been used uh, kind of as a cautionary tale for women. And then on top of that, preachers were taking stances against alcohol, and they were using Jack as kind of a devil-over-your-shoulder type of tale. And then, of course, he ends up being overshadowed by Jack the Ripper. Now, initially, it didn't seem that stories of Jack had made it to America until about 1961, but I did find a list that someone had put together of different sightings in America between 1885 and 1925 that may be inspired by or related to Jack. Starting in 1885, there was a specter who danced and leapt all around the roof and belfry of a church in New York. And then in Long Island, there was a ghost who wore a robe and would spit fire. And if people got too close, the ghost would actually turn around and say, whoa. Then Long Island in 1899, there's a ghost in the graveyard who was apparently pretty nimble and also had fire darting from its eyes. And that same year in Indiana, there was a leaping ghost who attacked wagons. Then in 1909, there was a creature called the Devil in Black in Delaware who followed several women and young girls or jumped out at them and when chased was able to run and leap away out of sight. I like the one that demanded personal space the best. The one that, would, <laughs> what'd you say? He turned and go, whoa. Whoa. Uh-huh. <laughs> Three feet, you guys. Come on. And circling back, because I did immediately think of him as Pirate Batman and I hope that you all do too. It turns out that description might not have been that far off, and he may have actually inspired Batman's creators, Bob Kane and Bill Finger, because of all of the short stories and plays that had been circulated around the time of his popularity. So he evolved actually into kind of a swashbuckling anti-hero. And this one source that I hope you guys also go and check out, just because it's super interesting to kind of see how things evolved. I'm just going to quote it right here. Also similar to Batman, to seek the best form of revenge and to engage in psychological power over the enemy, Springhill Jack would use superstition against the people he was after. When Springhill Jack is sighted in the darkness and in costume, he is described by criminals as a terror, with human form, agility of an ape, and bat-like wings part man and part beast. In the early issues of Detective Comics, Batman was seen in costume by the cowardly and superstitious criminals in the dark, and he would immediately invoke a feeling of dread and fear. There's also Springhill Jack's alter ego, Bertram Raiden, or B.W. He has a faithful servant who wants to see Bertram Raiden restored into his inheritance and again in charge of Raiden Manor as they speak from their secret headquarters, which is a graveyard crypt. This manservant is like Alfred, who was introduced in his first appearance in Batman 16, 1943, as a faithful servant of B.W., Bruce Wayne, who would help his master achieve his mission as his dual secret identity through whatever task was needed. So there you go. So Raiden, like, W-R-A, Raiden, like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. So you guys totally learned something. I did not know that. That is awesome. I didn't either. I, yeah. So there you go. We've got Springhill Jack, who was a scary boogeyman and who eventually became a different kind of scary boogeyman that kids like to dress up as. And yeah. Wait, Batman keeps coming up on this podcast. He came up, well, different Batman. Very different, but uh, very different. This one's better. 
This one's much this one's better. better Batman. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's still a sexual predator, but yeah, well, not that Batman. You know, Spring Hill Jack Batman, Pirate Batman. Pirate Batman. <laughs> I'm not trying to like defame or was it? Oh, what's the word? Uh, not slander. Libel, slander. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to, sl- to slander Batman. I love it. <laughs> and what's great is you're going to love this. So much of your story is relatable to mine. Just the newspaper stuff and the, and actually it's almost, it's a, it's a hundred years to the month. So you're going to love this. You, I think Ooh. you're going to get a kick. I know. So before I start, some of you are going to no doubt recognize this as I go along. And without spoiling it, I'm just asking you to stick with me and trust me as I start telling certain parts because you're just, you're just going to have to trust me. As with other stories I've told on the podcast, y'all know I like the ones where not everything is as it seems. So I'll just leave it at that. I take you to the U.S. 1938, October, the night before Halloween, and I just don't know if for you deep down spooky sweethearts, if it can get any more perfect than that. Allow me to set the scene of what's been going on around this time. Now, World War II is officially from September 1939 to September 1945, but things have been going down prior to that that people were aware of. Just countries invading other countries and such. Things that are legit. Too much for me to go through here. I tried to condense it, and I was not up to the task. But just understand that Americans were being kept in the know of at least the broad strokes of the conflicts emerging around the world that we were gradually getting involved in via the primo communication at the time, which was radio. And at this point, it's smack in what was called the golden age of radio about 1930 to 1945. Now, specifically the way they were being kept in the know about this stuff, as well as other important things happening in the country like the New Deal, because remember, we're right at the end of the Great Depression, was courtesy of President Roosevelt. And he would do these things called fireside chats that were broadcast on all the stations at the time. And of course, there's only a handful of national ones, particularly meaning NBC and CBS. So the fireside chats were, quote, A series of evening radio addresses given by U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt between 1933 and 1944. Roosevelt spoke with familiarity to millions of Americans about the promulgation of the Emergency Banking Act in response to the banking crisis, the recession, New Deal initiatives, and, of course, World War II. On radio, he was able to quell rumors and explain his policies. His tone and demeanor communicated self-assurance during times of despair and uncertainty. So, I say all that to say... People weren't unfamiliar with getting major stuff conveyed to them over the radio. Radio was legit. That's basically what's up. (laughs) Radio was awesome. Then there were the general news reports. So local stuff from area stations, but also general national stuff from, like I say, NBC and CBS. It just so happened that this did not go over well with newspapers, as I'm sure you can imagine. And it was so bad, there's actually a thing called the Press Radio War. The basics on this. It lasted from 1933 to 1935, and it essentially came down to competition. The newspapers didn't like how radios would be having their shows. Then in between, would catch people up on the news, which initially was them reading from newspapers. Then they started doing like the papers did and purchasing scoops from the wire services. So people were basically getting the news for free versus buying papers. It was heavy air quotes resolved like i say by 1935 but get real tensions were still there tuck this information away and the last thing was radio shows so things like the lone ranger and superman as well as what were basically plays turned into radio shows and they'd have various actors in studio doing the parts and other folks would be doing sound effects like footsteps and door knocks you get the idea so October 30th, 1938. The Mercury Theater is this independent theater company in New York City that was founded in 1937 by a producer called John Hausman and a young actor and future director, writer, and producer who you may have heard of, Orson Welles. And besides doing stage plays, they did other cool things, like they whipped up phonograph recordings of Shakespeare plays for schools and even dabbled in producing movies. But what you need to know about for our purposes is their other venture, which was that they had a radio show called The Mercury Theater on the Air. And it was on CBS, and they do that thing I mentioned earlier, acting out literary works. In celebration of Halloween, wanting to inject a little creepy, they decide the next one they'd be doing would be a dramatization of British author H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. Here's your skinny on The War of the Worlds. 
It was originally published as a serial, so broken down into parts, in a magazine. And then it was made into a book in 1898. So old as hell, and it was very successful, so it was pretty well known. And the plot is about these brothers in England and their experiences as Martians invade. There are wonderful illustrations, and I'll put some of those in show notes. They are wild. And I'm also going to link you to the full text if you want to read it. Okay, the program. Oh boy. To borrow a line from Pushing Daisies, the facts were these. The Mercury had announced ahead of time that they were going to be doing this, that it was going to be a modern take on the story, and Ole Orson was apparently super pumped about it, and his career was really picking up speed. He had actually been on the cover of Time magazine a few months earlier. The adaptation was written by Howard Coach, and it was going to be performed by Orson and a handful of other actors, along with a dude called Dan Seymour doing the announcer thing, and he was a known news broadcast guy, so the audience knew his voice and associated him with news stories. I will link you to a remastered version of the recording in show notes. Knock yourself out if you want to listen to it in its entirety. But I'm going to hit on some high points because it is just just get ready. Here's how it went down. They play their theme music. They say that the program tonight is an adaptation of the War of the Worlds, blah, blah, blah. Orson reads a prologue that was essentially just like the book's opening. And here's a piece of it. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water, etc., etc. We're just a tiny ball floating through space, blah, blah, blah. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, Minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beast in the jungle, intellects vast, cool and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Kind of, kind of heavy shit. That's ominous. Then I, yeah. well, you think? A touch. Then after that, for the next 30 minutes, the format isn't just the actors, you know, acting out a story. No, 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 my friends. They played it as just normal radio programming. There was some music, weather reports, whatever, and then they'd cut in with news bulletins. First, they say explosions were detected on Mars. Then they cut in and say, playing it off like it has nothing to do with that whole Mars thing, that an object had fallen out of the sky and landed in a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Let me pause here and sneak in another couple factoids for you about what had been going on in New Jersey in the fairly recent past. Quoting from one of my sources, There was lots of strange stuff going on in New Jersey between World War I and World War II, said Mark Mappin, historian and a former associate dean for academic affairs at Rutgers University. There was the Halls Mills murder case, which began in 1922. The Picatinny Arsenal blew up in 1926. And the Lindbergh baby kidnapping happened in 1932, which became the trial of the century. All right, so lots of drama there. But here's the kicker. In 1937, roughly 25 miles from Grover's Mill, at the Lakehurst Naval Air Station, a wee bit of a thing, that was where the Hindenburg went bluey. And if you were unfamiliar, Google Hindenburg. Big boom from the sky. Lots of fire and death. Yeah, that's a big one. That was messy. That was a hot mess. All right. <laughs> so, going back to the show. They go back to their music. They cut in again with a live report from Grover's Mill. I'm now going to read you that part, and thank you, Snopes, for the transcription. And I'll also be telling you the sound effects that were played. At <laughs> him, announcer, we are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. So, the actor playing the local reporter. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, here I am back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit, about 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now they've parted. The professor moves around one side, studying the object, while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole, a flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means, dot, dot, dot. Wait, something's happening. There's a hissing sound, followed by a humming that increases in intensity. The reporter. 
A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror, and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Good Lord, they're turning into flame. There's lots of screams and, quote, unearthly shrieks. The reporter. Now the whole field's caught fire. There's an explosion. The woods, the barns, the gas tanks of automobiles. It's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way, about 20 yards to my right. Dot, dot, dot. Crash of the microphone. Then dead silence. (laughs) They went for it. Holy crap. Imagine you're Susan. You're a typical New Jersey housewife who's been at the grocery store and you're coming through the door and Fred, your husband, is crashed in the recliner reading the newspaper and the radio's on, but he's not really paying attention and neither are you. You're busy thinking, hey, fat ass, can you maybe help with all these bags? And you're trudging into the kitchen and then you drop a bag once you tune into what the radio's saying and Fred's all, that better not be the ground round because I'm jonesing for a meatloaf. And you're all, are you hearing this? Fuck off with the meatloaf. We about to die. <laughs> I, I totally can imagine being Susan, yes. Yeah, we, we are all Susan in this situation. You're coming in halfway through. You've not heard, you know, the preamble where they've explained, hey, this is a play. And even if you have heard that, they've, they've done this in such a way. This is completely new to all these radio listeners. All right. So it escalates to where there's basically no more little musical interludes. It's kind of this frantic series of updates on the Martians coming to different places around the world and in the U.S. and how the military is struggling in this attack. And they end the first half of the program saying that these huge machines are letting out poison smoke over New York City. And they have an actor playing a ham radio operator saying, quote, 2X2L calling CQ, New York. Isn't anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? And then there's this long, dramatic silence again. Then Seymour, the announcer, comes on and goes, quote, You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. (laughs) All right. Nice. Susan's still over there with soiled britches, but, you know, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Not helping things is that they have the announcers also, he had said, Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from planet Mars. Other than that... During, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, other than that, during the back half, they do dial things down somewhat, and it fits more into a storytelling vibe by focusing on a survivor's experience through the Martian invasion. Then it all ends with the same thing the book ends with, which is that the Martians can't survive due to them not being immune to Earth germs or whatever. They're allergic to the planet. When the show's over, Orson pops back on and is basically like, Happy Halloween! <laughs> and that the program was kind of their way of, quote, Dressing up in a sheet, jumping out of a bush, and saying boo. Oh, Orson. Oh, that Orson. That was not boo. Bless that your heart. That was not boo. Mm-mm. <laughs> and I mean that sincerely, not in the southern bitchy way to which most are accustomed, because what they in the studio don't know is that outside, shit has kicked off. But they soon found out. <laughs> Here's some of the things that reportedly started cluing them in. And I quote, John Houseman noticed that at about 8.32 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, CBS supervisor Davidson Taylor received a telephone call in the control room. Creasing his lips, Taylor left the studio and returned four minutes later, pale as death, as he had been ordered to interrupt the War of the Worlds broadcast immediately with an announcement of the program's fictional content. However, by the time the order was given, the program was already less than a minute away from its first scheduled break, and the fictional news reporter was choking on poison gas as the Martians overwhelmed New York. (laughs) There's no interrupting that. Mm-mm. No, you can't, you can't shut that down. More from Houseman's memoir. And remember, he's the other co-founder of the theater with Orson. He said that during the ending theme music, he answers the phone and that, quote, the furious caller announced he was a mayor of a Midwestern town where mobs were in the streets. And the Houseman just hangs up on him because, quote, we were off the air now and the studio door had burst open. <laughs> Houseman goes on to say, quote, 
The following hours were a nightmare. The building was suddenly full of people in dark blue uniforms, so the police. Hustled out of the studio, we were locked into a small back office on another floor. Here we sat incommunicado while the network employees were busily collecting, destroying, or locking up all the scripts and records of the broadcast. Finally, the press was let loose upon us, ravening for horror. How many deaths have we heard of? Implying they knew of thousands. What did we know of the fatal stampede in Jersey Hall? Implying it was one of many. What traffic deaths? The ditches must be choked with corpses. The suicides? <laughs> Haven't you heard about the one on Riverside Drive? It is all quite vague in my memory and quite terrible. Now, I love that. It's vague in his memory, but did you check out all that detail? Like, what? He knew. He knew places. He knew all those things. Oh, my God. He knew that the guys, I love that, uh, creasing his lips, you know? <laughs> Hail is death. Like, yeah, this is some great vague detail. Okay. And if you think that the newspapers were not absolutely delighted over this, you would be mistaken. There was already a crowd of reporters and photographers outside, so Orson and the gang leave the CBS building through a back entrance. And Orson heads over to the Mercury Theater because a play that he was in was coming up, and the company was there doing this all-night rehearsal. At some point that night, one of the cast members got wind that the radio program thing was being, quote, flashed in Times Square. So they all leave and they head over to Times Square. And sure enough, across the lighted bulletin strip thing on the New York Times building, it says, all caps, Orson Welles causes panic. And listen, to say that the newspapers were absolutely blissful is an understatement. Allow me to regale you with a sampling of the headlines that were rolling out for the next day's press. And in show notes, there's going to be a link to every single one of these and more. Because I was scrolling through them, dying laughing. This, this is the best. All right. The New York Daily News. Fake radio war stirs terror through U.S. And they have a photo of a woman by a radio looking calm as can be. But the caption underneath says, war victim. I mean, what? what? <laughs> the Ogden Standard Examiner in Utah. Probe called into Martian U.S. war scare. Horrible fantasy of war waged by things from Mars brings near panic to nation. Time to pray, Utah thinks. <laughs> the Cumberland yes, Evening eight. Times, <laughs> Maryland. Radio program is too real. Listeners made hysterical. Woman tries suicide as a result of horrible fantasy of war waged on the United States. Federal Radio Commission will investigate radio war scare. Oakland Tribune, California. U.S. probes radio drama, terror case. Senator plans to curb broadcasts after wild scenes. No Martian life likely, astronomy experts declare. Radio terrifies scores here. Listener faints and officer hunts for gas mask. Freeport Journal Standard, Illinois. Radio broadcast panics nation. Terror sweeps country after graphic drama. The Dunkirk Evening Observer, New York. Mass hysteria is a result of play broadcast. Thousands fear world is coming to an end. Police phone lines clogged. Residents begin frightened trek to north. The Fresno Bee, California. Thousands flee homes in nationwide panic caused by radio broadcast of Invasion of Mars fantasy. And they have this little pic of Orson. And above it, again, all caps, large font, it says, Terrifier. <laughs> and, here's, <sighs> and here's one specifically for you. The Wisconsin State Journal, Wisconsin. Listeners faint, pray, prepare to flee. Hysteria sweeps country as radio hoax describes invasion by Mars giants. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, Wisconsin. But nobody beat the New York Times, whose headline was, Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. And part of the article said, quote, The broadcast, which disturbed households, interrupted religious services, created traffic jams, and clogged communication systems, was made by Orson Welles. At least a score of adults required medical treatment for shock and hysteria. In Newark, in a single block at Hedden Terrace and Hawthorne Avenue, more than 20 families rushed out of their houses with wet handkerchiefs and towels over their faces to flee from what they believed was to be a gas raid. Some began moving household furniture. What, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> like against doors or just hey i think i think i think they're tossing it in the back of the truck like beverly hillbillies let's go or like you know i know this mars shit's going down but don't you think the couch would look better against that wall i don't know what that means some begin <laughs> moving household furniture well shit <laughs> <laughs> throughout new york families left their homes some to flee to nearby parks i how would a let's go to a wide open space? Let's. Mm -hmm. I don't. Mm -hmm. 
Thousands of persons called the police. Newspapers and radio stations here and in other cities of the United States and Canada seeking advice on protective measures against the raids. All right. So I just, okay. I think you've got the idea. Some things that Snopes collected into one place, thereby saving my soul because my eyes were crossing trying to read this, these tiny PDF papers. Uh, let's see. In Providence, Rhode Island, weeping and hysterical women swamped the Providence Journal with calls asking for more details of the, quote, massacre. In Pittsburgh, a man returned home in the middle of the broadcast and found his wife with a bottle of poison in her hand saying, I'd rather die this way than like that. Oh, my God. In San Francisco, <laughs> In San Francisco, police fielded hundreds of calls from frightened listeners, including one man who wanted to volunteer to fight the Martian invaders. He's the first person that I like, actually, out of all of this. <laughs> I volunteer as tribute. Now, you want to know what wasn't in any headlines? This gem. One hour after the broadcast, the local New York CBS affiliate that had aired it issued this statement, which I'm choosing to read in the most exasperated and eye-rolly tone that I can because it's the only way that I can hear it. The statement said, For those listeners who tuned in to Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on the air broadcast from 8 to 9 p.m. tonight and did not realize that the program was merely a radio adaptation of H.G. Wells' famous novel, War of the Worlds, we are repeating the fact, which was made clear four times on the program, that the entire content of the play was entirely fictitious. <laughs> this famous work that you guys should know. Should know. About. <laughs> we said it four times. <laughs> oh, we've now arrived at Halloween. This is pretty much all anybody is talking about, thanks to the papers. Now, somehow poor old Orson is roped into speaking to a press pool. And instead of hearing me tell you about it, I thought you might want to hear it for yourselves. And I'll, of course, link you to where I got this audio from. There's lots of places, but the one I pulled is of the best quality that I could find. Now, when it starts, I couldn't make out the whole question, so I kind of made it fade in a little bit. But this reporter, she's asking something about psychological effects. And he answers, then the rest you're going to be able to hear. Just be aware that there's lots of shuffling and cameras clicking because he's seated in the middle of this group of people, maybe like 20 reporters. And like I say, I'll link you to the footage where I pulled this audio from so you can see it if you want to. And keep in mind, though, he is 24 years old and he mentions briefly how he's running on hardly any sleep. So just get ready to be impressed by how together and articulate he is dealing with these idiots. But anyway... I've cut out a few places where either he or the reporters were just unintelligible, but listen for one part where you'll hear him. He's like, uh, no. And it's where somebody had just asked him if he believed in Martians and the look on his face when he says it is precious. It's great. <laughs> All right. So here you go. Here's the audio. I simply don't know. I can't imagine. I mean, I, uh, you must realize that I, when I left the broadcast last night, I went into... Uh, dress rehearsal for a play that's opening in two days, and I've had almost no sleep, and I, I know less about this than you do. I haven't read the papers. Were you aware of terror at the time you were giving this role? Were you aware that terror was going on throughout oh, the nation? Oh, no, of course not. You know, we did Dracula, and uh, it seemed to me during Dracula I had high hopes that people would uh, react as they do in a movie uh, of that kind, and uh, uh, I don't know that they did particularly, and uh, so I'd given up. One doesn't believe in the radio audience much. You don't know that they're, that whether they're listening or not. You have no idea how many people are listening or what they're thinking. I had every hope that, uh, that the people would be excited as they would be at a melodrama. But you don't, you don't uh, uh, play down the melodramatic effect of a, of a melodrama. Have you altered your plans for future problems in any way as a result of this incident? Naturally, I, uh, we will have to sit down and, and think very carefully about future broadcasts. Do you think, Mr. Wells, that you might have taken unfair advantage of the public in using a method as a conveyance for authentic news? I don't believe that I have since. It is not a method original with me. It is used by many radio programs. Uh, I am terribly shocked by the effect it's had. I do not believe that the method is original with me or, or peculiar to the Mercury Theater's presentation. Do you think there ought to be a law uh, against such uh, enactments as we had last night or as a result of that? 
I don't know what the legislation would be. I know that almost everybody in radio would do almost anything to avert the kind of thing that has happened, uh -huh. myself included, but I, uh, I don't know what the legislation would be. We simply, radio is new and we are learning about the effect it has on people. We learned a terrible lesson. Will, do you think that this will cause uh, the curbing of uh, radio bulletins on the air today? I simply can't imagine. It seems to me that uh, the effects of this will may have uh, may cause much legislation. I don't. I simply don't know. It's it, it, the wisdom of uh, of radio executives and of uh, of an organized public will decide these things for us. Well, it's not up to me to speak. I'm the, uh, the accused. Well, every radio program tries to be more dramatic than life, as every play tries to be more dramatic than life, and every movie, not less so. I would have been surprised if, if uh, and, and hurt, as anybody would, if they'd been told that a presentation was less effective than life. Now, one part that didn't get caught was one reporter goes, should you have toned down the language of the drama? Something to that effect. And Orson responds, no, you don't play murder in soft words. I love it. Just Ooh. chef's kiss. Phenomenal. He, he knew how to perform. He knew, he knew how to, he knew how to do good things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like Citizen Kane is not my favorite movie, but I love it. the pacing's weird for me. I don't care for the pacing, but the structure's awesome. Like the point of view, the way, just the way it was done was really good. And it's a beautiful film. It's just beautiful to look at if you've never seen it. And so, yeah, we like Orson for that reason. I'm, I'm sure mm -hmm. he's problematic in a million ways that I have no idea about, <laughs> but hey. But bottom line is the press did an awesome job essentially smearing radio for being irresponsible with news. I mean, Orson had said years and years later, he'd still get asked about it, about this nationwide hysteria that he'd been part of. In total, U.S. newspapers over the course of the month put out almost 13,000 articles about it. Unreal, right? Crazy Whoa. unreal. And to further put a little frosting on top, listen to this quote from a newspaper industry trade magazine called Editor and Publisher. Quote, the nation as a whole continues to face the danger of incomplete, misunderstood news over a medium which has yet to prove that it is competent to perform the news job. I mean, they were sweaty. They were going to milk this for all it was worth. Were they basically being like fake news of the day? That's exactly <laughs> what they were doing. They were, they were calling fake news on radio, but then, well, here's the thing. There was no hysteria. There was no mass hysteria. It was created by the newspapers. So to quote CBS executive Frank Stanton, in the first place, most people didn't hear it. I mean, well, Frank, don't hold back. Say what you feel. <laughs> I mean, but he's, but he's got good reason to say it. First off, there were more popular radio shows airing at the time. Matter of fact, the number one rated show was amongst them. So common sense should tell you right away that the... Should I abbreviated War of the Worlds and I almost said World of Warcraft. <laughs> <laughs> I might leave that in. I might not edit that at all. So common sense should tell you that the War of the Worlds audience wasn't going to be huge just right out of the gate because of that reason. Secondly, in several big markets of CBS, the show was preempted for local programming. Plus, because of all the craziness, CBS immediately did a nationwide survey the next day and found out that their numbers for the night before were really low. And speaking of surveys, it just so happened that on the night of the broadcast, this radio ratings company called C.E. Hopper, which was the radio equivalent of Nielsen. And as a matter of fact, this company was later absorbed by Nielsen, the company that does TV ratings. Anyway, they were doing a survey and they spoke with roughly 5,000 households, which that's a pretty stout number given yeah, that's that a good chunk. this is, you know, this is right after the great depression. It ain't like every household's got a radio. So that's a, that's a nice chunk. And the question was, what program are you listening to? And guess what percentage said war of the worlds? Take a guess. Oh boy. Uh, I don't know, maybe 10? It's, it's low, right? A whopping 2%. Oh, 
Yeah. And even if they didn't know the name right off the bat, none of them were saying like, you know, the, I'm listening to the news, you dumbass, about the Martians. Like, they were saying uh, the story about the Martians. You know what I mean? Like, even if they didn't know the title, they'd, oh, we're listening to that, that story about the invasion. Now, the stuff related to, quote-unquote, hysteria that was confirmed was that there was a spike in calls to the police in New Jersey. God love them. But they weren't going bananas. They were asking for more info, stuff like, hey, we, we just want to double-check that this is fake. We're pretty sure, but just covering our bases. And David Miller, author of a textbook called Introduction to Collective Behavior, said also, quote, some people called to find out where they could go to donate blood. Some callers were simply angry that such a realistic show was allowed to air, while others called CBS to congratulate the Mercury Theater for the exciting Halloween program. Love that. See, people got it. People got it. Okay. Among the other things that we know subsequently, because people started digging into this, was that there were no traffic jams and people running around like crazy in, for instance, New York City, and there's no documentation of suicides, and area hospitals in New Jersey and New York City were checked, and there's no documentation of this horde of people being brought in panicked or having heart attacks or whatever. There were a handful of listeners who tried to sue for damages over being upset, like, you know, traumatized. And I couldn't find specifics, but my presumption is wanting to sue everybody from Orson to the Mercury to CBS and whoever. But all of those were dismissed. As far as all that punishment talk or Congress enacting laws or whatever, the FCC ended up not punishing them once they looked into it. Matter of fact, they actually said that in future license renewal hearings that the War of the Worlds thing couldn't be used against them. Although the FCC chair did get agreement from the radio networks that they wouldn't ever do a fake newsflash type routine as part of storytelling ever again. Yeah, that makes sense. I say all that to say there were never any official regulations or whatnot because of this. The governing bodies weren't all torqued up over it like the papers were making it seem. So, what the hell happened and why does this myth keep circulating? Well, one thing I found, and it's in the Slate article that you'll see back at show notes, was there's been several shows that got made about that night, about the panic in the years that followed. And they got it completely wrong and perpetuated the myth including a fairly recent one from PBS of all places. And of course, what you've got is folks citing all those newspaper articles without considering, for one thing, the radio versus news war, quote unquote war that I talked about earlier, and about them being desperate to discredit radio as a news source. And speaking of newspapers being used as sources, remember that number I gave about all the newspaper articles, that 13,000? Yeah. Well, a professor called W. Joseph Campbell did an analysis of all the newspaper reporting, and he discovered that in reality, the story fell off pretty quickly, saying, quote, coverage of the broadcast faded quickly from the front pages, in most cases, after just a day or two. Oh. But to be fair, even if it didn't last long, it was a lot of coverage there for a hot minute. And like I say, we have to remember that it wasn't as if every household had a radio because we're after the Great Depression. So more folks were reading newspapers and relying on those reports for how horrible this radio station was, that it was an outright hoax versus a play. But on top of that, there was a book in 1940 by a Princeton psych professor called Hadley Cantrell called The Invasion from Mars. And he's trying to break down the causes behind the panic in, quote, sociological terms. But he whiffed because, among other things, he was operating on the assumption that at least a million people had been listening. Where he got that number, no one what? knows. And he, I know, and he started gathering all his info only six weeks after the show. So, I mean, he... He couldn't have possibly investigated Dick. He was going by all this these newspaper articles, this fantastical reporting, which I, I would think a Princeton professor would know better than to do. And kind of calling back to what I said at the very beginning of the episode, you got to define the terms you use, especially in academia. Like how I was saying, what does widespread panic actually mean? What what number does it take to label something mass hysteria? What geographic area? You got to quantify those things, qualify those things. And he was throwing around terms like frightened and disturbed and excited and panicked without putting parameters on them. Because, you know, plenty of things in life can evoke those emotions in a person and they don't go nutter butters. So right, yeah. it was not as scientific as he wanted it to be. All right. So bottom line, 
no national mass hysteria. And if anybody tries to tell you there was, you now know the truth, which was that there was some isolated minor panic in certain areas. New Jersey, we understand. We don't judge. <laughs> Legit. Legit. We do not. Y'all have been through this shit. So we do not judge. But the nation itself was not gripped with terror. Most people got it. Now, here's a cute. After all this happened, Orson gets a telegraph, and it's from a critic called Alexander Wolcott. Now, like I said, the show had played opposite the number one radio program, The Charlie McCarthy Show, on which was featured a ventriloquist. So this Wolcott guy says to Orson, This only goes to prove, my beamish boy, that the intelligent people were all listening to a dummy, and all the dummies were listening to you. Bless. <laughs> I like that. That's a zinger. I like a good zinger. But to finish up, I leave you with the last lines of the performance. So goodbye, everybody. And remember the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch. And if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. And that's your story of the purported nationwide mass hysteria over the Halloween broadcast of the War of the Worlds. That was a good one because yeah i had always heard that it was chaos yeah the people lost their chickens absolutely yeah hey hey they moved furniture okay they, they started did. moving so, furniture who That's... are we to say that that was not chaos <laughs> i don't know my god the furniture got moved i don't know why that hit me is so funny i mean y'all should have seen me there were tears in my eyes scrolling through these <laughs> article headlines and just seeing his picture just and they used the the worst picture of course they sourced the worst stock photo of orson wells they could find where it, it looks like somebody called his name and he turned around and went huh and <laughs> terrifier above it and, and the whole thing family started moving furniture well hold on <laughs> Now I it's mean, serious. When I was in college, we had some neighbors upstairs that liked to move furniture, but that was a little bit more of uh mm. <laughs> of an irritant. There there wasn't a panic situation, yeah. <laughs> that was just them getting it on. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> what you mean. I, ca I call that headboard banging. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Mattress dancing. <laughs> Oh, okay. I, I mean, there's lots to focus on in yours, but right at the end there, why is a ventriloquist on the radio? What? Thank you. What? <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. For, for those who don't know, now everybody knows, the whole point is for me to see that his lips aren't moving. There's no, there's no TV. TV had been invented. I looked this up. TV had been invented. It, so people weren't, I mean, most people I'm sure didn't quite have their brain wrapped around it yet, but the process was, you know, it was, it was grooving. It was starting to get going, but it was going to be quite a while before everybody had them in their house. So how, how is this impressive? And unless you had seen this dude, on stage at some point, I guess, and had to trust in the fact that his lips weren't moving. Because if it's me, if it's Nash the ventriloquist on radio, I ain't holding a dummy in my lap. I'm just going to be kicked it up in front of the microphone, much like I am now. <laughs> <laughs> and my mouth's just going to be a moving. I mean, we could say that this whole thing is just, it's just Nash. She's just throwing her voice, making a tiff voice. I have a little <laughs> tiff dummy sitting on my lap. <laughs> Suckers. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad that whatever 2% of people chose to listen to him, there's hope yet. <laughs> Good night. I know. I hope they were all the ones that, the, well, the, the people that got it, please let them be the ones that have enriched the population. Please don't let any of them be like, ah, we've decided not to procreate. No, I really hope that you... That you've added to the population with, except for New Jersey. New Jersey is the only exception to this rule because also, and I cut this part from the audio because just for time's sake, they asked him, why did you use 
real names because Grover's Mill exists. Why do, and New York City, of course, exists. And he, he goes, because that's what H.G. Wells did. In the novel, he uses the names of real places in England. So mm -hmm. that's what we did. Yeah. And he said, I forget who chose Grover's Mill. Somebody just picked it out of the blit. We, we were wanting kind of farmland area. And so somebody said, well, here's one that's, you know, not, it's not New York proper. And it's over there. I don't know. Kind of a small area. Maybe nobody would recognize it. I don't know. Uh -huh. Except for the fact that the goddamn Hindenburg blew up 25 <laughs> miles from it the year before. Just, it was just oh. such a perfect, a perfect storm of things, of all places that they picked. Oh, man. People, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we do have, like, Snopes and other things that we can fact check. <laughs> because what did they do back then? God mm -hmm. love them. So, you know, this makes me kind of think of, um, like, the Blair Witch Project. I feel like Orson would have been all over that. I feel like that's his jam. That's right in the same kind of mm -hmm. category. Mm hmm Reality sort of, yeah. Oh, I wonder what he would have thought about that. Mm-hmm. When did he die? Yeah, he died before that. Yeah. I feel like he's been dead a while. 80s, maybe? Early 90s? 80s? Well, you know, I'll look. <laughs> Can you look? I'm looking Let's look. right now. A brief... Please listen to a brief musical interlude while our on-site reporter battles Martians and Googles. Um, he died October 10th, 1985. Ah, again October. See, this all connects. We didn't even try. Did not even try. <laughs> Did not even try. So, alright, that's it. That's your first October episode, first of five. Got some good stuff coming up for you guys. Hopefully some atypical stuff that's Halloween-y. And two spooky snacks, one of which the story is going to blow your hair back. And the other one, we're, we can't give too much away, but it's going to be Tiff going on an adventure and reporting back to us. Yes, and I'm so excited. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> She's beyond excited. You don't understand. She's really pumped about this. So... Fingers crossed. Everything's going to work out with this because it's going to be a good one. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm excited, you guys. Be excited with me. I've requested photographs. I've requested... Well, not photographs. How old does that make me sound? Good God. I sounded geriatric. <laughs> I want selfies oh. and I want... Well, you know, I, I want will... images. We want images yeah. for Instagram and stuff. Oh, yeah. They'll, there will be. It'll be great. It'll, it's going to be so good. I hope I inspire you guys to go on adventures, too. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, for listening. We hope that you had fun with this one. I know we did. Make sure that you stick around afterwards and listen for all of our vital information for how to keep in touch with us and contact us and, you know, make sure to connect with us on all of our social media. Absolutely. And, you know, reviews are awesome, but you ain't got to. We don't care. We put it this way. On a scale of 1 to 10 and caring, we, we care... The 10 is more, we just love interacting with you guys. So don't feel pressured like you have to leave a review. If you do, you do. If you don't, you don't. We care that you listen. So no pressure. And that's, I promise, it's not reverse psychology. We're serious. No pressure. Yeah. I mean, pound okay. a star or a heart or whatever a platform has. You know, pop that. But don't feel like you have to leave some paragraph talking about how awesome we are. We know we are. So, and we're humble. Clearly. Yeah. Stay spooky. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUpodcast. And on Instagram, at you totally made that up. Feel free to contact us on those platforms. And you can also email us. That address is you totally made that up at gmail.com.